The Start. On Demand. demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Wednesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And today, we are going to speak with a former Manitoban in California, specifically the wildfire zone. She had to be evacuated. We'll hear her story. And then we'll talk about, we'll ask the question, I guess, is the cold that we experience in the winter the trade-off for less of a natural disaster risk? Or do we just tell ourselves that? We're also going to talk about the Olympics in Calgary, specifically the no vote. The plebiscite happened and Calgarians voted no. They don't want the Olympics, at least the majority, 56%. So it was close. It was a close vote, but the no vote has it. So that is pretty much it for that Olympic bid. We're also going to talk about texting and driving. We'll get some clarification from the Winnipeg police on texting while you're in a drive-thru, texting while you're sitting on a train. What are the rules? We'll get the answers. We're also going to go to Sarnia, where Global Chief Investigative Reporter Carolyn Jarvis followed up on something rather horrible that they found out about Sarnia last year, and they want to see if any changes have been made. We'll also take you to New Jersey, as a university in New Jersey has banished the women's cross-country team because they were too distracting to the boy football players who like to look at the girls in their sports bras. Come on, really? You banished the team? Get out of here. We're also going to hear from a former Winnipeg Blue Bomber, Joe Poplowski, or Joe Pop. The last time the Bombers played a playoff game in Calgary, he was there. It's all coming up on today's podcast. Right now, Greg Mackling, we start this half hour in California. We're going to Southern California, of course, uh... Northern California, also some severe fire and an absolutely tragic situation there. The Woolsey fire flared up yesterday morning near Hidden Valley and Lake Sherwood in the Santa Monica Mountains, prompting new evacuation orders in Ventura County, just as many others were being lifted in Los Angeles County. This is from KTLA, by the way. The blaze has been burning for six days along the Ventura-LA County line and has scorched more than 151 square miles, destroying at least 435 structures and claiming two lives in Malibu. It was about 40% contained as of late yesterday after consuming about another square mile of land, according to Cal Fire. The red flag warning that's been in effect since Sunday isn't set to expire until 5 p.m. Pacific time today, and that has to do with those Santa Ana winds that are very much uh, responsible for moving the fires. The fire activity was largely largely rather, in Ventura County, where multiple flare-ups were spotted throughout the day. Former Winnipegger Wanda Stiles lives in Simi Valley, which is in Ventura County. She's... Uh, she lives in that part of California. She works in Burbank, and we caught up with her late yesterday to find out what the last few days has been like for her. Friday is when I had to leave work in Burbank and uh, go home and pack up the kids and pack up the bag, and, and we were on voluntary evacuation. Um, that lasted for about a day, maybe a day and a half, and we were taken off of voluntary evacuation. So um, we kept the bags packed because, you know, it's a fast-moving fire. It's it's mostly all about the wind, and we have very high winds, uh, especially where I'm located, but but kind of all over right now. So uh, 
bags were packed until Sunday night. And then yesterday morning, a new fire broke out within a mile of my place. And there was just smoke everywhere. The skies were black and orange. And uh, luckily, my husband had these uh, masks, you know, the painters wear or whatever. We put on and closed all the windows. But they got that fire out very fast. I'd say less than four hours. Freeways were closed, so all the traffic was being rerouted through our neighborhood. Um, but it was really just a matter of a few hours, and then it all settled down and cleared up. And luckily, the winds were so high that they blew the smoke away pretty fast as well. I'm guessing this isn't the first time you've been through something like this. <laughs> uh, no, it, uh, this is fire season, as we like to call it. Um, last year, it was the Thomas fires on one side of us. And then um, fires in Santa Clarita on the other side of us. But they never got this close as they are this year. So it's just different spots um, at different different times. But it's mostly, it's mostly around this time that we get the high winds, the high heat. Well, we have high heat all, all summer, but the high winds is what pushes the fire around. So tomorrow we still have a high of 80 with high winds. And then after that, it's gonna, the winds are going to drop off, and we hopefully will start seeing some. Um, they'll be able to alleviate some of the fires. So, you know, I've been to California a number of times. The second last time I was there, I experienced an earthquake. Uh, is this just one of those things? It's just an occupational hazard part of living in California? Is that the way most Californians look at this? Uh, somewhat. You know, uh, when I decided to move out here, like, however many years ago that was, uh, everyone said, you know, don't go, the earthquakes, you're going to fall in the ocean. I've experienced a handful of earthquakes, and none of them have never, have ever, like, knocked a picture off the wall or anything. So it's funny what you fear, you know. Um, these are definitely a lot more life-threatening at this exact moment, but it, they don't happen all the time. So different things happen different places i mean you got blizzards and i'm sure just as easy somebody could get stuck out on an abandoned freeway somewhere and i i don't know there's 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 risk everywhere you go that's my theory so this is just part of life this is just part of the equation the formula for for living in one of the most beautiful parts of the world yeah i'd say so how do your kids handle all this kids are troopers my my six-year-old uh got a little sad uh, for her friends, the animals that might get hurt in the fire. But I explained to her that uh, we have many amazing rescuers that will make sure that they get taken care of on every aspect. And, uh, you know, once we get home, like once we're, we're fine for right now, once this is all over, I'm going to go through the house and find everything I can to donate. You know, they need everything from personal stuff, bicycles, toys, clothes. And um, we're going to do everything we can to help with the Red Cross. And I think a lot of other people feel the same way. You know, when you when you just miss a situation like that, it really makes you humble and want to help out everyone that you can at that point. Well, it sounds like you still have a lot of Manitoba in you, Wanda. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little tougher than some, but uh, yeah, we adapt. Funny what you get used to, the whole idea of these fires we'll talk about. Is that a trade-off that you would make? 
living yeah. with these wildfires in your backyard for warmer climes, a, a more comfortable place to live. Yeah, I, uh, I've been thinking about that, and we'll get into that in a moment. But before we do that, we're playing the Foo Fighters. What did Dave Grohl do yesterday? Well, front man Dave Grohl doesn't want firefighters battling the California wildfires to go hungry. So he served his backbeat barbecue at Fire Station 68 in Calabasas, California. Monday night firefighters, get it? Firefighters who have been battling the Woolsey fire. Thank Grohl on Instagram. His publicist, of course, did not have any details. Probably didn't even know David done it. Grohl posted an image on his Instagram telling firefighters simply to dig in. Mm. He sounds like one of the most down to earth guys, rock stars there's ever been. Is that fair to say? You know more about him than I do. In every interview I've ever seen, that's exactly what he is. And it is my dream. That'll be the ultimate thing in, in my career is if I could just have five minutes wow. to sit down with Dave Grohl. Yeah, I never would have uh, expected that because I remember my first memory of Dave Grohl is is him banging the drums in the Smells Like Teen Spirit video for Nirvana where you couldn't even see his face <laughs> right. because his bl- long black hair was just kind of <laughs> bouncing up and down. He looked like the, the creepy girl in the Ring movies or the grudge. Right? Oh you my gosh, the ring is a perfect description. Yes, you you're look right. Like Samara. I'm only. I was laughing, Greg, only because I didn't know if he could give a objective opinion on Dave Grohl being an honest and nice guy. But I think he certainly comes across like that. Mackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Forte. And we just heard from a former Manitoba now living in California, having to get evacuated from the wildfire zone. 48 people confirmed dead in Northern California due to these fires. And that prompted the question, Do is the cold that we experience here in Winnipeg in Southern Manitoba a good trade-off to not have to think about these kind of natural disasters. Wanda just kind of said, yeah, it's fire season. It's what we deal with. We were evacuated for a little bit, and then you come home, and then we'll donate some stuff to help other people that lost everything. It was very matter of fact. Kind of like flooding here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, almost like mosquitoes. (laughs) Yeah, except for those fires (laughs) and those flames are coming. Like when you see those pictures and you think you're going through that year after year, and even talking to people that I know in Fort McMurray, like wanting to leave because just the idea of that ever happening again leaves them with all this stress every single fire season. And so I don't know. I don't know if that's a good trade-off. A flood, I feel like in Manitoba, you don't always see it coming, but it seems to have a bit more of a lead-up to it. Mm -hmm. Can you prepare for that better? I don't know. A flood, I think you prepare for it a lot better. Sandbagging and got the floodway. Except when you have something like 97 where it's pretty much difficult to to prepare for for what happened then. Yeah, for sure. But uh, if not for the warning and building the Zed Dyke and all that stuff that they did, uh, what's the estimate? $13 billion worth of damage. So, I mean, I I don't know. I think there is a trade-off. And 48 less lives lost, I think, Yeah, that's right. Jeff Brun, what would you prefer, the cold of our winter or living along the uh, eastern coast in Florida where you could be hit by a hurricane? Or an earthquake. I'll take the the cold anytime because, like Loren said, you can prepare for the cold. We know the cold's coming months in advance, and... We are suited for the cold, and so, and yeah, earthquakes, I mean, you can sort of prepare for that, but you can also just, your life changes in an instant, and hurricanes, avalanches, what else, volcanoes, things like that that happen everywhere else on the planet. Every time one of these things happen, I was like, 
Ah, it's nice to be in the middle of Manitoba. Well, I was joking this morning that my husband, like my kids will see that on TV and they'll say, could that happen here? And he's like, nope, not in Manitoba. Like we're all kind of smug about the idea that we're immune to some of those things. I mean, and every place has got something, at least one thing, right? Sure. So we got a couple of things, floods and cold and the threat of tornadoes even or whatever. But yeah, given anything, the other stuff that can and does happen across the globe, I think we're pretty lucky. But how many times do you have someone come visit you? And I've had this happen before, and especially if it's in winter, they'll say like, you live in this? Like this is like to them, sometimes the winter in Manitoba seems like no way would I trade that off for for the threat of earthquakes or wildfires. And yet, (laughs) growing up on the, the West Coast... Like from, I don't know, mid-October to March, April, it's nothing but gray and dreary. And I'll never forget the first winter I spent out here. Now, it wasn't the harshest winter, but I'll take minus 20 or minus 25 with a beautiful, pristine blue sky over four or five degrees and slogging and sloshing in gray, depressing, damp, West Coast weather any day of the week. It's Beautiful true. BC, everyone. Yeah, it is yeah. true. When I lived in the Okanagan Valley, I skied a lot. So you would go up to Silver Star to Big White to get up above the clouds. Sure. They'd have these inversions, and it would be just split pea soup over Lake Okanagan and Kalamalka Lake. And you could, it was like you were above it all up skiing. And that was the only sunshine you got sometimes for weeks and weeks at a time was if you were a skier. So I know what you're talking about, Kelly, and I, I've i rationalized my uh, decision to come back to Manitoba with the, the very same thing. Oh, winter in the BC is kind of gloomy. You know what my friends say. Yeah, but you don't have to shovel it, Mackling. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they get their fair share of snow there too. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, the trade-off, like now when it's minus 30 and the wind chill's yeah. minus 50 and you're walking across the parking lot to get in the doors, here, maybe then you're thinking, why do I live here? Let's ask again the third week of January, see how we all feel. Yeah, Yeah, like here's the thing, too. You could move to a place like Arizona, which is hot, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't, they're not particularly prone to any sort of natural disaster either, are they? Water shortages, I think. I guess drought would be about it. Scorpions, rattlesnakes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's that. But, you know, the, the, the flip side for them, Brett, is because uh, a buddy of mine used to uh, uh, live and work down in Arizona, and he couldn't believe the transition that he had to make. He was a runner as well. He had to go out and run at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning because any time after that, it was too hot. Too hot. Yeah. So, you know, you're, it, it might be too cold for us in the winter. Well, it, conversely, it gets too hot for them to really do anything during the day. But there are plenty of places with a decent climate where you wouldn't have to be too hot or oh, too yeah. cold and like I spent 18 months in Jerusalem and I think that was just the weather never got maybe it snowed once in that time and it was just a fluke and otherwise the sun shone every day yeah, and you it, had some other interesting yeah, inconveniences yeah, sure. to deal with there you know sirens that would go off once in a while and, and yeah, sure there's other things but you get like the people there get used to yeah. how does that go down they just get used to it like you, in terms Siren of, goes. Okay, so there's some towns that be close to the Gaza Strip, where um, which is home to Hamas, and so they might send a homemade rocket over to the the Israeli town, and the siren go off, and people would be shopping and going to school and all the rest, and the siren go off, and then you run to the bunker, and everybody kind of holds their breath for a second, and then you hear the bomb drop, 
and then you find out where it was, and sometimes it's terrible, and sometimes it's just it missed and hit oh. a field, and then you just kept going with your day. And I'm not saying that it wasn't stressful for them and all the rest, but there's all sorts of things people in life you adjust to if you love that home, whatever's home to you. Yeah, I still remember watching the footage of that lava flowing through right. Hawaii and watching it just wipe out fences and homes and... I think we had a discussion with somebody on this show, Greg. Uh, you know, do you regret living in that part of the world with this? I, I don't know that I could live as beautiful as it is. I don't know that I could live in the shadow of a volcano. I remember the audio distinctly of the guy from California who lost his million dollar house. He goes, I moved here from California to live in paradise. I rolled the dice. I knew what I was getting into. And well, that's just how it goes. Is there volcano coverage for insurance? <laughs> I don't think so. No? I don't think so. Yikes. Not when you're living on one. We <laughs> might be able to get it here. <laughs> That's a good question. There has to be. I'm looking that up. We start this hour in Calgary. The flame on an Olympic dream went out tonight, and it was felt nowhere more than right here in this room among BIDCO members, among volunteers, Olympians, and everyday Calgarians who've been fighting for months for this opportunity, but it was not to be had tonight. There was an audible sigh of disappointment as the results were read and even some tears. Global Calgary reporting from the site of the Calgary 2026 team. The headline at globalnews.ca, 56.4% of Calgarians say no to 2026 Olympic bid in plebiscite. Those are the unofficial results, but... Uh, I don't know that I'd say that's a, a rousing victory, no. but uh, it's still a victory nonetheless for the no side. And they went ahead and put it to the people. So now can you really come to City Hall next week and say, look, I get that you kind of don't want this, but we still think it'd be really great. What do you do with that? You can't do anything. 24% of the population eligible voters decided to come out. So that means essentially just over 12%, closer to 15% of Calgarians that were eligible to vote voted no, but that means only about 11% right. who were eligible to vote actually voted yes. So how do you spend a couple of billion dollars at the civic level uh, based on the input of and the and the thumbs up from 10% of the population? I think it's pretty tough to do. And I would bet this is just... From, from the people I know in Calgary, and I have relatives and friends there, some texting last night that they were really disappointed that they, you know, and, and they were torn too, but everyone likes the idea of the Olympics and what it means and what it could bring. And even myself, I was like, I probably would have gone out there for those games if they won that bid after they voted yes, if they had voted yes. And then so I kind of disappointed in some way, just as a Western Canadian. But then maybe we just need to be doing Olympics differently if this is the sentiment okay. that's out there. Uh, you because... know my opinion on how they ought to be done. This idea of one city of a million people or so holding a Winter Olympic Games, I think the time has passed. And, and when there's that much money being spent by the federal government, over $2 billion in this case, why should one community get all the benefit? from that amount of money. You but could I, genuinely, I'm sorry, you can genuinely do no. this in Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, Whistler. I don't disagree with the several cities. What I think more is, like, do we need to have an opening ceremonies that has, like, a brand new stadium and all this pomp and circumstance? Does, does the athlete's village have to be brand new? Like, there's no place in any city that could house all those people. Like, I, I get spending money on the security. If you don't have that pool, you have to build that pool. If you don't have that track and field stadium, you got to build that stadium. 
That's the idea of spreading it across cities, though, because for the most part, if you do it like that, you don't need to really build any new facilities. You can refurbish them. You can upgrade them. You don't have to build from scratch. And that has always been my argument. If Canada wanted to bid on the Summer Olympic Games, you have... Not in one city, but if you combine the efforts of six or seven cities, you would have all the facilities you needed, and you wouldn't have to build a single one from scratch. You just have to upgrade one. Well, Brett, you had a clip. Do we have from this guy to play? Just because I think his point is something Winnipeggers can relate to. Well, there's two clips here I want to play. One from both sides. One is from uh, no Calgary Olympics spokesperson, Aaron Waite. So I'll play that one first. And then you'll hear from uh, somebody on the other side from the Calgary 2026 team. So we'll get to his clip in a moment. But first, here's Aaron Waite from no Calgary Olympics. It was never uh, against anything against Calgary. It was definitely a no Calgary Olympics and about hosting the Olympics. We are as passionate about Calgary's future as anybody. And we have faith and optimism in Calgary's future. And so this was not in any way, uh, you know, a, a vote against Calgary or other Calgarians. We want Calgary to prosper and do well. And we just worried that working with the IOC and hosting the Olympics was not the way to do that. And that's a sentiment echoed as well by Franco Terrazano, who is the Alberta director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, saying this is a huge win for everyday Calgarians and taxpayers across the country, sort of echoing uh, part of your sentiment there, Greg. Jason Ribeiro, meanwhile, Calgary 2026, he's mad. I think as we saw the misinformation reported by what was most disappointing in people in positions of power, people that are our elected representatives, either knowingly or not knowingly, misleading or reporting inaccurate information about a very complex deal to an electorate that was waiting for information. I make no apologies for knowing exactly what we knew about the bid book, for communicating that as positively, as thoughtfully, and at a greater length than I think any effort uh, in a shorter amount of time span. So I guess it's safe to say he's uh, he's not happy with how it went down yesterday. But that's the kind of conversation we had around Portage of Maine, a much smaller, 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 you know, uh, infrastructure investment by a long shot. And yet there was still, I think, that whole idea, like, did people really understand what they were voting for? Or did they just see that that number, that price tag, and think, nah, let somebody else pay for that, or or I think that's stupid, or I'm not interested. And was there an effective sharing of information and what the consequences of saying no and saying yes would mean regardless, because we know now, within 48 hours of the plebiscite and of the election, we find out that the barriers at Portage and Maine in all likelihood are going to have to come down anyway, and then the decision will have to be made as to whether or not we replace them, and if we replace them with what, how much will it cost? So the conversation isn't going away on Portage and Maine. Uh, the question will be in Calgary, is this the end of the line? Because as we understand it, we're trying to sort it out, but it sounds as though city council could vote to go against the plebiscite. And what does that do for the future Olympic bids? Does every city put it to a plebiscite now, or do you just let the people you actually elected decide? It leaves two cities, Milan in Italy and uh, Stockholm in Sweden as the only two cities that have voiced any interest in hosting the 2026 Winter Games. If you want to read more details on this, you can go to the 680. CJOB Instagram. I've put a link to the story in our Instagram story. We start 
This hour, Loren McNabb with the Winnipeg Police. Yeah, and we wanted to reach out to the Winnipeg Police because we had the RCMP on yesterday talking about the possibilities for tickets for distracted driving. Like, you could get a ticket if you're in a drive through and on your phone. You could get one if you're parked at a train waiting for it to pass and using your phone. And so a lot of people were writing in saying, okay, well, this is the RCMP talking what about the Winnipeg police? How do they feel about this? And so joining us on the phone now is Inspector Gord Spado. Good morning. Good morning, Laura. So thank you very much for being on with us. I know you're busy. We wanted to get right to it and just discuss this idea. First of all, there's no difference between what the RCMP would do over the art over the Winnipeg police. If you saw somebody texting or using their phone in a drive through it's possible they'd get a ticket? Yes, it is. It's uh, definitely within the, uh, the act that... Uh the laws do apply to parking lots and, and drive throughs Why do you think people are having such a hard time with that one? Because, it, you know, a lot of the feedback we're getting was like, hang on, I'm not, in a, I'm not in a roadway, and also I'm on private property. What gives the police the jurisdiction to go on to private property and do that? Actually, uh, Section 236 of the Highway Traffic Act uh, speaks to parking lots and that drivers have the same rights and duties and are subject to the same penalties as if uh, those offenses occurred on a roadway. So, Inspector Spado, we've had conversations with regards to intoxicated driving or driving under the influence and questions about your own driveway and about what you can do behind the wheel in your own driveway if you've had a beer or two. Maybe there's a correlation here as well. Do you have to be careful about what you do on your own property? Uh, well, impaired driving could be because you have uh, there's something called care and control and it doesn't matter if the vehicle's in motion or not. So for an impaired driving offense, yeah, that could actually be on private property as well. So somebody in their own driveway, definitely. Um, For the Highway Traffic Act offense, uh, no. (laughs) If you're on your own property, that wouldn't apply because it's not a a parking lot. Uh, So we wouldn't have the same uh, authorities in in that case. I've had the question about uh, consumption of cannabis in a a vehicle as well. If you're in your own driveway, technically you, you could. Uh, smoke uh, marijuana in your car. That leads to all sorts of other issues as far as the care and control or uh, when you are on the on the roadway and the odor that uh, is left inside your car. But uh, you would have the the authority under the Highway Traffic Act to do that. Now, Inspector, if, we, if I'm in a drive-thru and I pull out my phone when I get to the window and I use an app to pay for my order, am I going to get a ticket for that? Uh, let's be realistic. We've got higher road safety priorities than to sit a drive-thru to... Uh, to try to nab people on their cell phones. Uh, It's not something we're doing. Um, The authority is there. And technically, if if you put it in park, you'd have the exemption. If you don't put it in park, technically, you could end up with a ticket, but nobody's actually going to be going to that extent to to try to enforce that. Uh, Paying with your phone would be absolutely fine. Well, I want to ask you then about the exemption if I put it in park. If I'm sitting at a train and I've got my car in park and there's a train that's clearly not going anywhere for 10 minutes, can I use my phone? No, because you're on the roadway that's uh, normally used for travel, so that is not considered parked. What do you say to the drivers who say, well, what's the harm? Like, I'm just sitting there and I'm not moving and the traffic's not moving, so what would be the harm of me touching my phone? Have you ever been stopped someplace and you see out of the corner of your eye that other traffic starts to move? Yes. And then you start to move because you think everything's clear? It would be the same type of scenario that you have the risk of your foot falling, slipping off the brake or, or you start to move your vehicle and it, it's just the law that you have to be pulled off the side of the road and parked. 
Now, by asking these questions, I don't want uh, to give our listeners or you, Inspector, the, the, the indication that we are not in favor of the rules surrounding this. It's just with everything that's on the line for drivers now, it's not just a fine. It's not just points on your license. It's losing your vehicle for, for three days. So people no, are you, hypersensitive you to what's going on, right? You don't lose your vehicle at all? We well, you lose your license, of course. Your license, yeah. Yeah, so th- there's a lot more on the line for folks now, and so I, I, I hope you understand that, that people are just really trying to, to make sure that they, they know what the rules are. Basically, if, if you're not in a parked position, your phone should be away or securely mounted where it can lawfully be uh, used in a vehicle. That, that's the bottom line, and it's just trying to get that message out. The, to talk about stopped at a light or at a uh, at a train crossing where do you, where would you set that that limit as to okay well if you're stopped for 30 seconds in park you're good but if it's 35 seconds you're not it, it's got to be you're in a lane of travel and um you just ha- can't have your phone out i'm curious we're now i think about about two two weeks into this uh, inspector spado in terms of the the rule changes not the rule changes but the penalty changes for distracted driving, do you feel like there's been any impact? Have your officers said they're noticing it less because people are now in fear more of getting that that heavier penalty? I, I think there's, there's been a bit of an impact. Um, we noticed that uh, as soon as the announcement came out that it became a little bit more difficult to actually uh, apprehend drivers for it because people are either changing their behavior or being more um, covert about it. Uh, I just did a quick run on numbers, and I can't give you the numbers for November, but they seem low compared to previous months. And um, I, I know we've got some data entry delays, so I can't. That's why I won't release those numbers. But uh, it seems considerably lower than we, we normally would see. Which means it might be working. Well, we saw this in April when they first uh, introduced the bill to the to the legislature as well. I think there was a, an initial fear, and people thought it was in place, and and th- we saw a big drop off then. Um, I think we'll, we won't know for a couple of months if people are actually changing their behavior or if this is just a knee-jerk reaction to uh, an announcement that's been made. Inspector Gord Spado, thank you so much for the time and access. We appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much. Right now... You know, I remember uh, doing the Parade of the Homes and uh, I can't, somewhere in Waverly West and there was a street, I think, called Prominence Point, which I think is meant to strike inspiration into, you know, I live on Prominence Point. Well, how'd you like to live in a place called Chemical Valley? Yeah, Ooh. it's an actual moniker for one of the largest petro- petroleum and petrochemical complexes in Canada. Chemical Valley is, of course, Sarnia, Ontario. And you may recall last year, a global news investigation revealed what was sort of referred to as a toxic secret in that area, which was a pattern of industrial leaks and spills. And Global News went back one year after we first aired that report to see if anything has changed. And unfortunately, sounds like not much has. Carolyn Jarvis is Global's chief investigative correspondent and joins us this morning. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning to you all. So for those of us who are just not familiar with Chemical Valley, uh, can you set the scene for us? What do we mean when we say it's home to one of the largest petroleum and petrochemical complexes in Canada? Well, there are about uh, three dozen or so uh, plants that are registered emitters of pollutants on both sides of the border. Uh, Sarnia hugs the border with Michigan right across from the river. And so there are polluters uh, emitting chemicals into the air on both sides that come into the airspace at Sarnia. And on the south side of Sarnia 
is a small First Nation of about 900 residents called Amgenong. And what's very particular about this First Nation is that it's literally encased on all sides, surrounded by petroleum and petrochemical plants, so close that literally you can walk just a short number of steps from a person's home to the perimeter of a, of a large industrial plant with large emissions. Today, bylaws would prohibit anybody from being anywhere near that, that degree of proximity to a large emitter. But these homes were grandfathered in and was allowed to happen, and it's just remained that way. And so there are emissions coming off these plants and people living in some place, cases uh, less than 100 metres away. So what's been the ramifications of that? Have there been health issues or, or environmental concerns? Well, all of the above. A lot of people uh, in the community believe that there is a potential that this is making them sick, but they don't have definitive proof. You know, we spoke with parents a year ago as part of our documentary that we created that said, my son died of leukemia, and I believe that was on account of benzene exposure, but there's no way I'll ever be able to prove it. They've got higher incidence of respiratory illnesses in this part of um, the province, and there are in neighboring communities of similar sizes, but nobody can say it's because of the plants that this is happening. So one of the things that we were most proud of as a result of our investigation was that 48 hours after it aired, in partnership with the Toronto Star and National Observer, the Minister of the Environment of the Day, then a Liberal Minister, stood up in the legislature and said, once and for all, we're going to fund a multi-million dollar health study to find out whether or not these emissions are in fact making people sick. This is something people in the community, community leaders had been asking for for a decade and they wouldn't fund. 48 hours after a piece there, they said, fine, we're finally going to do it. So we wanted to follow up to see what was happening with respect to that study and what was happening with respect to the emissions in the community. So what's happening? Has that study been commissioned? Well, uh, we, we found out from the now conservative government that despite it having been put in the 2018 budget by the Liberals, no money was actually put aside from it, which is a bit of a head scratcher when it's in the budget. Uh, but they said that this is something they are committed to doing. The new environment minister made a trip to Sarnia, his first official order of business when he took his first trip. And he said it's going to happen. It's going to be a multi-year, multi-million dollar study. So answers won't come quickly, but it wants to be, he wants it to be scientifically rigorous to be able to put people's anxiety and minds at ease. So uh, we're, we're very pleased that that is going forward. But in the meantime, we looked at emissions levels and we don't have data from this year to say whether or not the ambient air quality is any better today than before. But we did see still some troubling signs, you know, that leaks and spills and odor releases still happen nearly once a week when it comes to the alerts that are received in this community, that uh, we still see noise complaints. We, we calculated them all that went out 62 times in a year. So that's more than once a week in some cases. Uh, flaring, which are big fires from the stacks that light up the nice, night sky. These warnings go out on average twice a week. This just paints a picture of what it's like for people in this First Nation to live right next to these plants where they hear booming and they smell odors and they're told that something's seeping from a neighboring uh, industrial facility on a very common, if not regular basis. And this is still continuing today. Are there air quality monitor- monitors in place for people to refer to? There are, but the problem is is that they're, um, they're spread apart by several kilometers. And so they're not always gauging what's happening in the middle. And what's very different today than what was there a year ago is that the companies that couldn't meet a very strict benzene standard that Ontario, in a very progressive move, put in place, required them to install what are called benzene monitors at the perimeter of their property. So benzene, for those who aren't aware, is a cancer-causing chemical. It's considered a class one carcinogen for the International Agency on Research for Cancer. It's, it's, it's an undeniable 
a chemical that's linked to cancer. And so they wanted to monitor how much of that was coming off their property. And we have that data now in hand, something we didn't have one year ago. And we analyzed the data for the first nine months that were available. And for example, a mere 75 meters from a house, there were levels of benzene that persisted for two weeks that were 23 times what Ontario has said is the desirable daily limit for to be protective of your health. Now, fortunately, this was off the Shell plant. Uh, Shell and the ministry saw that there was a problem. They fixed the problem and the benzene levels went down. But that's data we didn't know about before. People wouldn't have known about this before. And the air monitors aren't picking that up. So it's indicative of the fact that there are still problems at place and people are being exposed to what are very serious chemicals on a regular basis. So the government is sort of paying more attention to this area. Are the people feeling any better as a result that at least some eyes are on them? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, we brought this data to people's doors and they said they had never heard of it. I mean, sure, it was posted on somebody's website. But, you know, if you were told that there were benzene readings and micrograms per cubic meter on a website with GPS coordinates that aren't even in latitude and longitude, you'd probably have a hard time figuring in. And a monitor that had a number that you didn't know where it was located, you'd probably have a hard time figuring out how that affected your life directly. So when we brought these to people's doors who lived next door to these elevated readings, they were angry and they were surprised, and it was the first time they individually had learned of it. So um, there is still great concern, and I would say there's great anxiety, and this is a community that's very divided. Keep in mind that industry is the lifeblood of this community, and many people in the First Nation, not just Sarnians, work in industry. Uh, people didn't want to speak to us because they don't want to smear industry that keeps food on the table and the power on in their homes. So it's a very conflicted community that wants to make sure that industry thrives, but that their health is also looked after. This is a balancing act a lot of communities deal with, isn't it, Carolyn, in terms of that relationship between uh, a polluter, an emitter, and the jobs that come with having those type of industry in your own backyard? I agree. And, you know, when we sat down at length with the new Minister of the Environment, he said, technology is our friend here. You know, these monitors are telling us where the leaks are happening. And we can use greater leak detection and repair, as will be required in the coming years, to show us even further where the leaks are happening. And we saw one reading um, at a facility, a chemical manufacturer called Ineostyrolution. It's about 350 meters across from the ball field where kids play ball through the spring, summer and fall. And, you know, one day they had an emission of benzene that reached the detection detection limit. It was over a thousand micrograms per cubic meter. And that was sometime in a two week period. The detection, the desirable level for two weeks, for a daily level, rather, I should say for Ontario, a non-binding level, not legally required to hit it, is 2.3, a thousand versus 2.3. So there are still really high levels. Companies aren't necessarily getting fined because they're not breaking any law. But people aren't always even being told it's happening, so they can't even do something about it. So there are still serious concerns in this community that I think need to be addressed. Carolyn Jarvis, Global's Chief Investigative Correspondent, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you so much for the time. It's my pleasure. Thanks, you guys. The headline at globalnews.ca. It's a disgrace. A year after Ontario promised change, toxic emissions still spilling into Sarnia. Now, we referenced this No Girls Allowed business, and it's at uh, track, and fo- track and football field at Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey. Mackling, what's happening here? Well, it's 69 degrees outside, 
And uh, so it's a little warm on the field inside the track. The university's football team was holding its own daily practice. There had been tensions between the teams, the the cross country and the and the track team and the football team. And uh, Gina Capone, a student and former Rowan cross country runner, uh, tells the New York Times the football coach had a problem with the women running on the track. Capone said he said that. Are you ready for this, Loren? Oh, I'm ready. It was distracting. It was distracting to his football players. Because okay. because why? Well, because on hot days, they would uh, take a layer of clothing off and they would run in their sports bras. The men would run with no shirt at all, and the women would run in their sports bras. And the football coach thought that this was a travesty, something that could not be allowed. Give me a break. I can't even. Because his players were going is... to be. Yep. Runners practicing in sports bras, the university tells them to go elsewhere. Like, come on, you're distracted by a woman running in her equipment, so to speak, but the women aren't distracted by the men? Well, that's what Capone said. Here's her quote. As girls, we could look at the football team and say that they're tight pants. Showing off everything is asking for it, but... We don't, Capone wrote, quoting a current member of the cross-country team, when we are on the track, we are doing a hard workout that requires all of our focus, so we aren't looking at them and what they're doing. If they are distracted by us, then their practices clearly don't require their full attention, or they just aren't as committed to the sport. How about just being mad at your team for a lack of focus? Like, if they're not paying attention to the coach, either you have a bad coach, and maybe they need to get in an Uber cab, and I'll talk about them, and then post that video somewhere, <laughs> or how about you just talk to them about doing better and not blame it on the dress of someone else? Not is- condoning the behavior. I'm not condoning this at all. I think this is ridiculous, but... I just want to stir the pot a little bit here. Obviously, horses and humans are different creatures, but what was the deal? How at, different are they? What was the deal at Cavalia when they came to Winnipeg? <laughs> was all right. all the horses were male? And why was that, Brett McGarry? Because they'd get distracted if they were female. So we're animals now, and we have a, like a, a inability to overcome our animal instinct. Like that's what we're saying. There's well, do boys need to be protected before from themselves? That protect themselves from themselves. Like, it's not my, like, my job is to teach you to be a better human being, but not to tell you that you should stay away from, like, your, the animal instinct idea here is, I, makes my head. Isn't that base, <laughs> the basis of a lot of the dress codes at public schools, though, is that for, that the girls need to be covered up because they're going to distract the boys. Isn't there a problem there? Well, I'm actually agreeing with you, McNabb. No, by I know the way, you are. I'm talking about the double standard of this, the double standard of the idea that the woman would have to wear something, but the men would not. So the men still get to walk around with no shirts on? If the dress code is everybody has to have a shirt on, fine. Well, it doesn't matter now because they've moved the practices to the high school. They moved the practices? The, yeah, oh, so yeah. So they fell, like the school's yeah. fine with them practicing because they're distracted yeah. by these women. Yep. Yeah. You've got to be kidding me. I don't kid. I'm like doodling madly with swear words on my piece of paper right now to prevent myself from saying them out loud. Post that piece of paper on Instagram. No. For the record, I know the horse thing was ridiculous. I just felt like lobbing that grenade. I know you did. A lot 
of Winnipeggers are excited for this weekend. Yeah, there were a ton of Winnipeggers that made the trek to Regina last weekend for the West semifinal. I don't think there, there will be as many making the much longer drive slash flight to Calgary, but I'm sure there'll be a fair number of former Winnipeggers living in Alberta that will will take the journey, make the journey from wherever they live in Alberta to McMahon Stadium, a place that the Blue Bombers and Stampeders have not met in a playoff game since 1978. If my math is right, that's 40 years. Wow. And a gentleman who uh, was on the roster on that day... That season, it was his rookie season. He was the most outstanding rookie in the Canadian Football League that year, by the way. Joins us now, Joe Poploski. Most of us just know him as Joe Pop. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. How are you guys today? Always fantastic. And uh, you just made the day much better by uh, taking some time to uh, to join us. So t- take us back to 1978 because you were originally drafted by the Edmonton Eskimos. I was, yeah, I was uh, a territorial protection actually, and then there were some complications, uh, and what ended up happening, and it turned out to be a great trade for both teams. I, I must proudly say, uh, Tommy Scott ended up going from Winnipeg to Edmonton, and in return, I came to Winnipeg. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. Tommy went on to have a terrific career, and. I had a pretty good one in Winnipeg, and uh, but 1978. You know, it's interesting when you brought that up. I didn't even know that that was the last time that the Bombers played a playoff game in Calgary. I mean, that's uh, that goes back, as you say, 40 years, and it wasn't a great memory by uh, by my recollection. Well, Dieter Brock had had an outstanding season, not his best season as a Blue Bomber. Those would come uh, a couple of years later, 80, 81, 82, but he had an exceptional year, but unfortunately an injury, and he only missed six games in his CFL career, but this was one of them. Who actually played quarterback for the Bombers that day? It was Harry Knight, and interestingly enough, Harry, who was the backup all year, actually had a shoulder injury, came back just in time for the playoffs and was perhaps at, uh, you know, maybe 75%. So we went into the game with an injured quarterback, a guy who wasn't 100%. We had a backup by the name of Terry Luck who got injured just before the playoff game. I can't even remember who our backup was, but Harry Knight played the entire game. We basically had to try to run the ball against Calgary. I remember one of the very first passes thrown that game. It's an amazing 40 years from the day, and I still recall it. But it was an out pattern, a a short pattern to myself. And uh, Harry labored to get the ball out, and it was almost intercepted because he didn't have the arm strength that uh, that he usually possessed. And uh, it was a difficult game for us. I don't recall the score, but it wasn't very close, if I remember correctly. I don't think we need to recall the score. I think we should just push past (laughs) that. You had a built-in excuse with a lot of injuries and a backup quarterback and all the rest. I think it was... How about we do this? There there were 42 points scored. Total. Total. And the Bombers got four. So how how do we We do that? How about we do it that way? We got some of them. (laughs) We got some. Okay, so I did remember that it was one-sided. Good, good. My memory's not going. So, so Joe, as you you look at this current edition of the Blue Bombers, you you uh, you, you have a couple of a Grey Cup rings yourself. Is it is it is it three? It actually no, only one. I played just in the '84 Grey Cup, and uh, interestingly enough, as soon as I retire, they win two more. What does that tell you? 
uh, it tell it just says you, you retired far too early. That's all it tells us. So you would have been uh, a huge contributor in uh, '88 and 1990. So when you look at this Blue Bomber team, because I know you go to most, if not all, home games, what do, what do you think of this edition of the Blue Bombers? Because the heart and soul of the Blue Bombers in those years in the '84, '88, '90 was definitely the defense. Now the defense isn't dominant like uh, maybe some of the defenses we've seen in the past, but it, it's pretty darn good. It, it certainly is, and if you can use the term, it's peaking at the right time. It uh, They went through some struggles there mid-season where they lost four or five games in a row. I don't remember the exact number. I believe it was four. But it was the turnaround of the defense, I think. And, of course, once Dressler got healthy and was back in the lineup, the offense started clicking. But I do believe, and I, I try to compare this year's team to what we had in the 84 team, and it was the linebacking core, which really – um, kind of took the team on its shoulders. Uh, if you remember Tyrone Jones, uh, we had Aaron Brown, we had Delbert Fowler, we had Frank Robinson, and uh, they were the heart and soul of our defense back in the 84 game or the 84 season. And you take a look at Santos Knox, you take a look at uh, Big Hill, a couple of premier linebackers, and I do believe that it was the play of those two individuals that really turned the season around for the uh, football club and resulted in them playing extremely well down the stretch. And they played an excellent game against Saskatchewan. I mean, Bridges, the or Bridge, the quarterback from Saskatchewan, has got you know an interesting talent, and that is his ability to run the ball. And he did pretty well against us, but we certainly held him uh, against the passing attack. And once again, if I compare the two. 84 team versus this year's team it's that strong linebacking core that i think can lead them to the promised land joe can you stick around for a few more minutes absolutely excellent joe poplowski former winnipeg blue bomber is our guest or joe pop as loren has it in your phone so you hey, can just you shoot get him those number? random texts exactly you're forewarned joe you're gonna be getting some texts from me for no reason at all mackling mcgarry McNabb on 680 cjob and Poplowski, Joe Poplowski, joining us live on the start. Former Winnipeg Blue Bomber as we get ready for the big game this Sunday, Greg. Yeah, uh, what was Hanson had that song, Mbop? Yep. It's Mpop this morning. <laughs> oh, Joe, oh. How do you, Joe, how do you feel about that? Next subject. <laughs> a decidedly enough. thumbs down uh, answer, but from Joe Poplowski on my on my joke, trying to bring him into the group here, but uh, that's okay, Joe. Hey, uh, so you were mentioning the 1984 Grey Cup, and a lot of people have been uh, texting me and saying, "Hey, you know, Hamilton's in the Eastern Final. The Bombers, Tiger Cats, '84. Mm, where did they play? Edmonton Commonwealth Stadium. We mentioned Dieter Brock earlier. Uh, is this?" this a potential do we do you see some potential for some deja vu well certainly there's there's some potential you take a look at how hamilton played last week and uh i mean they just destroyed bc and if they can carry that over however i, I don't know what the uh what the regular season record if i'm not mistaken i think ottawa did have the advantage against hamilton but hamilton's defense i think has underachieved throughout the regular season they certainly didn't against the BC Lions, who've got some real threats on offense. So if Hamilton's defense can play the same way, carry it over against Ottawa, there's a chance that we're going to have Hamilton representing the East. And you take a look at how, B- oh, pardon me, how Winnipeg played against Calgary in the, uh, the last matchup between the two teams. There's a real chance that the Bombers can knock off Calgary at home. So, uh, yeah, a little deja vu might be in, in the works. 
Joe, the fact that the Bombers haven't won the Grey Cup for so many years, I know teams will always say, oh, no, we don't think about that. We don't think about that. But does it, is that true? Like, you, I would think that that has to add a, a slight level of uh, urgency and pressure on the team. You know, that's a tough question. I, I think every individual will handle that on their own. I'm, I'm sure that the coaching staff are reinforcing opposite thoughts that is you know last year or previous years is a different team and there is a a new collection of individuals and I think that it's taken some time for the defense as we spoke about before the break you know the defense really started to click and I think it's taken them a little bit of time and you know the leader on the defense Adam Big Hill was a stranger to the defensive system he seems to be uh, peaking at the right time as well so I'm going to say it's not going to be a factor and it's not going to be, you know, a premier or primary thought amongst the players. So I look at it being a clean slate for the football club this coming Sunday. Now, when the Bombers won the Grey Cup in 1984, how many years had it been since the Bombers had won a Grey Cup before that? Remember it very well. It was 22 years. Aha! So the players do know, Joe. They do know. They do think about it. I'm no longer a player and I think that at this time. So uh, that's yeah, he, good point. you've gone good back point. and memorized those statistics since, right? They weren't in your head then. So is it that's no exactly right. is it a no nerve situation in the locker room? How do you can control it for some of those rookies who haven't been in this position before, given that they haven't been a playoff game for Winnipeg in seven years? Well, that now that's a different topic. And I do recall the dressing room and I do recall the nerve situation in 84. Now, one of the reasons was I was playing at home, Edmonton being my hometown, and so spent a lot of time with family. And uh, leading up to the uh, Grey Cup game, of course, we knocked off the BC Lions. And that was as big a game as we had played, uh, or as big a game that I played my entire career, because we'd been so close in so many playoff games. And then to knock off BC by about 14 or 18 points, I can't remember the score exactly, in the Western final, uh, that was a huge victory for us. But the dressing room, Grey Cup day, it was more quiet. And you got to remember, we had a number of characters. We had the, uh, the Tyrone Jones in the dressing room and a number of other individuals, and it was exceptionally quiet. So without a doubt, the Grey Cup game is the biggest game that they will play a lot of guys in their career. So you do take it with uh, uh, you know, a little bit more seriousness. All right, Joe Poplowski, former Winnipeg Blue Bomber, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Just got to mention this text from Trev, Joe, before you go. I used to have a life-size poster of Joe Pop, which I hung in my bedroom as a kid. He scared me a number of times. <laughs> in a good I way. Thought it was a friend- I always thought it was a friendly smile. I still have one up in my <laughs> Joe Poplowski, Joe Pop joining us live on CJOB. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.